human beings like to eat. And human, human beings like to eat with other people. In fact, eating meals with others is part of the social fabric of every culture on planet Earth. I've been in a few other cultures, a few other places at times. You will see this. All the rules are different. The way is different. The food is different. But people like to come together to eat. And every culture takes social dining so seriously that it establishes rituals and rules of etiquette for how people are expected to dine together socially. You realize intuitively, you don't really need to be taught this, but you realize intuitively within our culture, if you are meeting a friend at a McDonald's for an ice cream cone, there's not a whole lot of rules to the etiquette there. If it's meeting somebody for coffee somewhere, there's not a lot that goes into that. But as the formality of the meal rises, so do the rules of etiquette and the regulations that are put with it. Take again, as we looked at last week, this week, a wedding reception. In our culture, it's customary to receive a written invitation in the mail. We don't really think about this, but you realize there's cultures where that's not the case at all. But for us, we expect that. This invitation comes, it is written, uh, and it tells us when the wedding is and asks if we would like to be part of this wedding. Is it etiquette to ignore the invitation and throw the self-addressed stamped envelope and reply form in the trash? Is that etiquette? No, it doesn't take a whole lot, and we know you put a yes or you put a no, you put the number of people and you send it back in. That is being responsible. Is it etiquette to attend the wedding reception and to skip the wedding ceremony? Well, under normal circumstances, no, that's kind of rude to do that. Come in and get the meal and forget the wedding part of it. It is customary at a wedding to have what we refer to as a head table. We all know where that table is. It's set aside in a prominent place somehow. Is it etiquette for you to decide in the middle of the meal, you know, I think I'd like to go up and talk to those people. I'm going to pull my chair up and sit at the head table. You would never think about doing that. That's not etiquette. That would be rude. That would be insensitive and just break all the rules. There's certain things we understand about how to eat. Social dining, there's customs, there's rules and regulations. That is true in our culture, that is true in every culture throughout the world, and that has been true for, very, for a very, very long time. And when we go back to the times of Jesus, it was no different in Hebrew culture. In the culture of that day, it was common for rabbis and religious teachers in Israel to hold large public meals to which they would invite very prominent people. And in a very unique twist in their culture, this meal would be public. It was not public to eat, but it was public to watch. Anyone from the community pretty much could be invited and, or, or could just come in, though they were not invited, and can stand by and watch this meal taking place. So if you were important, you were at the meal. You reclined on your left elbow on a low cushion and at a low table and you would eat there and you would interact on theology and important issues of national concern and others would stand around and watch you those that were not of a class and a status important enough to be invited to this meal now often the, these meals took place it took place at all times but often on a sabbath 
People would go to the synagogue and they would uh, worship God and consider his truth in the word. And then the rabbis and the leaders of the synagogue and, and in, in important individuals would be brought to a certain house and have this important midday meal. It's just such a meal at which we find Jesus in Luke chapter 14. Now let's think contextually as we work our way up to Luke chapter 14. What is going on in Jesus' life? Jesus has been rejected by the Jewish leadership, though it's not been formal at this place. They are certainly not embracing him as Messiah. There is a window of opportunity, Jesus continues to instruct, an opportunity to repent and to embrace Jesus as Messiah. But that opportunity is coming to a close for Israel. And Jesus in his teaching is filling up with more and more urgency as he says to these leaders, you must realize the time is short. Remember the parable in chapter 13. The tree is about to be cut down. It is not bearing fruit. Your time is short. The window of opportunity is about to close. It's, it's in this context that we find Jesus at a Sabbath meal. I give you just a, a, a forewarning here, or as we look ahead in the book, this is the last meal with the Pharisees. But Jesus is yet at this point invited to dine with them, which gives a sense of fellowship and interaction and acceptance at a certain level uh, of Jesus by the Pharisees. At this meal, Jesus both demonstrates and offers advice on how to be a good dinner guest. Now, on the surface, his instruction seems fairly mundane. In fact, in the first casual reading of this text as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking, how do we preach on the etiquette of Jesus? I mean, does this really even apply to us? Table manners in the ancient Israel or something of the like. It might make a good PBS series, but what has that got to do with challenging a church spiritually? Jesus is just talking about table manners here. That's on the surface of things. He's just talking about social etiquette on the surface, but seeing this meal in the broader context of his rejection by the religious authorities helps us to realize there is much more going on at this dinner than meets the eye. In discussing table manners, social rules and regulations, Jesus is really seeking to shape minds and he is seeking to change hearts we'll come back to that theme as we close today lord willing but subtly to be sure through his words and his actions christ challenges his religious dinner guests to embrace god's kingdom and to embrace himself as their messiah so look below the surface but we get into it all at something that's very easy to see, and that is another healing that takes place on this Sabbath day. Chapter 14 and verse 1. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Notice that phrase, carefully watched. With hawk-like gaze, they eye Jesus and hope to see him fail in some way. Can they pin him down here? Now we remember Sabbath healing back in 13, verses 10 through 13, and we need to remember that as we think on this healing. Remember there, Jesus heals this woman who is bent over with this infirmity, and 
there is opposition to what Jesus does in this Sabbath healing. And he humiliates the leader of the synagogue as he says, what, you're willing to help take care of your cattle on this day, the Sabbath, and I'm not to heal this woman who has suffered with this situation for 18 years? He humiliates the synagogue leader. He's coming right back again on their turf on a Sabbath and he's healing again. Jesus continues to press this issue, to press this matter, because there's something in it that they need to see. Jesus can heal on any day of the week. But he chooses to heal on a Sabbath to make his point. Another opportunity for the leaders to embrace him for who he is. Now notice verse 2. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Dropsy probably suffering from organ failure that did not always go with dropsy, but was often connected to it. But let's get a picture of this man in our mind. His body is retaining fluids at a very high level. His chest cavity is swollen. His stomach is swollen large. His limbs are swollen large. He's, 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 it's like he's pumped full of air. It's a horrible situation. He would, it would have made him a social outcast as well as a religious outcast. We do not know if he is at the meal. If he is, perhaps he's there to bait Jesus. But probably more just this idea of the public being uh, able to come in and watch this meal. And here comes this man in this horrible condition. He's very sick. It's very obvious. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law... He goes on the offensive right away here. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, what's their answer to that? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Their answer is in 1314. Remembering back there, this synagogue ruler indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Listen, you can wait till Monday to get healed. That's their real answer. They can't fight Jesus on this thing. He keeps healing people, and there's nothing they can say about it, but not on the Sabbath. That's their real answer, but what do they say? Verse 4, they remain silent. Jesus has really put them up against the wall here in their relationship with the people of Israel, and there's nothing more that they can say. It's damaging, however, they answer that question. Is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? Yes, it's legal. Well, what about what Moses said and the Sabbath is to be a day of rest. No, it's not legal to heal on the Sabbath. If they say that, they look insensitive to this man, uncaring. And Jesus has put them in that spot once too many. So they say nothing. No objection means that Jesus can proceed and there can be no rebuke. Because if he heals, they cannot then come back and say, you shouldn't do that. He has already asked them here. They're silent. And now he's free to do what he desires to do. The middle of verse 4. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. The text obviously does not land on the healing itself and, uh, because that is not the particular focus of Luke here. But think of this man. Think of the immediate shrinkage to his body. All of these fluids gone, and he stands there before them, healed and whole. Right before their very eyes is another example that Jesus is Messiah with the power of God. They are humiliated. They are silenced. And this healing comprises another call to them to respond. 
Verse 5, Jesus speaks, asking them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? Jesus knows that they are rejecting what he has done, and they are ridiculing him, if only in their minds, for healing on the Sabbath and, and violating the law of Moses to rest on the Sabbath. But listen, people. Do you take care of an ox that falls into a hole on the Sabbath? Yeah, you get, the, you get it out of there, and if it's your son that falls into the hole, are you going to get him out of the hole? Or are you going to say, you know, hang in there, Monday's coming. No, you're going to heal him, or, or you're going to lift him out. You're going to rescue him, rather. Clearly, verse 6, and they had nothing to say. Of course they would help an ox. Of course they would help a son who was in such a situation. Why then not heal this man? Well, the dinner gets off to quite a start, doesn't it? There's tension in the air. They don't like what Jesus has done. He has violated their religious rules and regulations about work on the Sabbath. But there's nothing that they can say. Now, after a brief commercial break, Luke zooms back into this dinner. It starts off with high tension, and the situation continues, though Jesus interestingly enough, sort of pacifies the situation a bit and just begins to chatter about table etiquette. He talks, first of all, of all about seating assignments, beginning at verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. That's what you shouldn't do. Just a, just a moment or two and a little bit of context. The typical setting of that day, place settings, was at a table that was in a U-shape, a square U. And the center seat, if we could have this side coming out this way, and then across the back here, and then another side coming out here with this U-shape, the prominent seat was right here at the middle of the bottom of the U. And you're reclining on your left elbow with your legs behind you on this cushion, oh, Horrible way to eat for us. I think we, we certainly prefer our chairs, don't we? But they had that all figured out and their body was used to it. They're, he's, he's reclining on his left elbow and eating with the right hand. The person that where your head was in their chest, right to the left, was seat number two. Now, they, we would never catch this at all. If we walked in, it went in t back in time and we landed in one of these meals, we'd have no clue what, that there even was a place of prominence. We'd just say... Let's just pick a seat wherever. But they knew exactly where the seats of prominence were. You had three seated on each wing. And if it continued, then the wings would just keep going down with three more seats at each little table. So center of this table here is most important. Number two is here and number three is here. Then the next most important is the middle of the left table here with the most important next to him at his left and then at his right. And then that goes over to the right side in that way. And they just, they walk into a room and they know this. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We know right where all of the 
special positions are. Now, Jesus is saying you walk into one of these situations and you have to find your place on this low cushion. Which seat are you going to choose? This is apparently a situation in which no one really knows if there are any assignments, and so they come in and pick a place. Isn't Jesus teaching just practical wisdom? In fact, you can find the very same words in Proverbs 25, 6 through 7. Here's this open seating situation. Why embarrass yourself by taking the best seat and then having the host say to you, you're in too important of a situation. I want you to move over to this place. That's horrifying. Don't do that to yourself. Okay, point well taken. What do we do? Verse 10, but when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. And we look at this and say, what is wrong with these people? Having these positions of importance at the table and knowing where they are and wanting to be at the most important position. We, I, we don't really think that way much in this culture, do we? And you know one of the reasons? Because Jesus Christ has had an influence on this culture. We don't think in those terms that they did. They thought in them all the time. And Jesus has not, not only have they been watching Jesus, Jesus has been watching them. And he says, you know, as I observe you come to these meals, you like to get at the very highest place that you think you des- where you deserve to be. You shouldn't do that. You stand a chance of being very humiliated. If you start at the bottom, you can only go up from there, right? Do not risk this social shame. So as one commentator, to paraphrase, put it, risk being exalted. Do not risk being humiliated. Common sense. But is this all Jesus is saying? Is he he just talking about positions at the table? Notice what verse 11 says. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the place where the hair stands up on the back of the Pharisees' necks. All that he's been saying to this point is just Proverbs 25 and just common sense table etiquette. But now all of a sudden, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Jesus is making a much more pointed observation, and he is talking about pride. Back to 1330, we have an interesting connection here. In 1330, he said there in that teaching, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. That's his point. And so now he puts it this way. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That goes right at the heart of the Pharisaic attitude. I have to be humble to be exalted. I don't like that. That doesn't come naturally. That's not the way we do it with our rules. Jesus is not primarily interested in seating arrangements. He is primarily interested with the humility of heart that translates into daily living. 
He is seeking to reshape minds. There is here an ethic of humility. You know what? Where you sit shows me your theology, says Jesus in this context. Humble yourself before God, and He will lift you up. You guys are lifting yourselves up, and it's shown by the way you choose seats at a meal. Indigestion is the result of this meal. Jesus now embeds another subtle message in a second parable, this one dealing with dinner invitations. Verse 12, Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, so you will be repaid. This is not, I think in the Greek text, would indicate particularly that this is not a prohibition against inviting relatives or friends to eat with you. The Greek text simply prohibits a habitual pattern. As Christ issues the warning that such invitations lead to reciprocal response, that's not good because it means, as he says here, that you have your reward if this is how you go about it. Who are you to invite? Verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what is the reward of the response in verse 12? Those who invite friends, those who invite social contacts that can lift them up, this elitist type of invitation. What's your reward? Well, your reward is that they invite you to their place. But what is the reward when the people that you're inviting cannot reward you? Your reward is in heaven. Your reward is before God. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is how you should think. The goal of hospitality is not to secure return favors and bolster our social standing in this life. The goal of hospitality is to give ourselves away to meet legitimate needs and lift up hearts with a view to future reward. What great prospect is here. If they cannot reward you, the Lord will. Look to the end and live for God. Pour out your heart and give to others with the view of eternal reward. What a great prospect. Jesus again creates indigestion. He talks directly to this host and says, really, you're not doing it the right way. You use these meals to connect with important people. You're a wealthy man. You can put out the spread. You send out the invitations. But you need to understand that you're using your influence and your money in a way which brings you reward here rather than in eternity. 
Jesus is shaping minds and hearts, and he's saying how you look at life affects the way that you live on a daily basis. The next instruction, and another parable, deals with dinner reservations. And now Jesus is going to begin to hone in here on the Pharisees and really deliver the blow. It's all very subtle. It seems like he's just talking about etiquette, but there's a point that is there in each of these parables. And he really brings this home now in this last one. When one of those, verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Commentators have a lot of fun with this as to what motivates this man, and we obviously don't know, but it could well be, as some suggest, that he's really kind of uncomfortable and would like to change the subject to something we all agree on. Jesus has just spoken of the resurrection of the righteous. Is it not exciting, he says, to think about the great feast in the kingdom of God? We looked at that last week. Remember, that's the enduring symbol of the kingdom blessing in the future, in the resurrection of the righteous. This gathering together with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and sitting down and eating at the kingdom, this great feast where many will come from north and east, south and west, and gather here for this great banquet. Won't that be a great day, says this dinner guest, to feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replies with a parable. He talks, first of all, just as they would understand, about invitations going out. Verse 16, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Now, this, is, this misses us a little bit here, but invitations in that day are not sent out by mail or by telephone or something of the like. You send a servant out who delivers the invitation verbally. This invitation really needs to be received on the spot. Then, verse 17, at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant, and we could put there to help us, he sent his servant again to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. So you would send out the servant the second time to just let people know things are now ready. It's that day, again, it's not, it's not we're having dinner at 6 o'clock, and everybody converges exactly at 6 o'clock. You're sort of guessing at what time it is, and, and you arrive at a certain place, but it's a long, all-day meal. So the servant comes by and says, we're going to be ready momentarily. Please make your way to the dinner that you have said you would attend. So the servant is sent back out to invite everyone to the meal that has na is now ready. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Now many have poked fun at these individuals and said, who buys five cars and doesn't go look at them first? Who, who buys a field and doesn't see it before they buy it? It might be that these are just lame excuses. But it was also commonly practiced among the wealthy to send a servant out and to make a purchase that was contingent on the master coming and giving his approval. So it could be that in the culture of that day, these people did in fact need to go see this land and see these oxen. 
But again, it's not by any means impossible for them to attend this banquet. In fact, they had earlier agreed to do so. But having agreed to do so, when the day actually arrives, oh, you know what, we have other things that are a little more pressing, a little more important. Verse 20 adds a little different twist. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Added to the material interests of the previous two respondents, this man cites a social reason for not accepting the invitation. One pastor summarized this very well when he said, Possessions and affections cover virtually every reason by which men and women give their regrets to the kingdom. Possessions and affections separate us from Christ. Separate many. Many reject him. And many in this context reject the kingdom because they have issues to deal with in life. Well, how does the host respond? Verse 21, he sends out more invitations. The servant came back, verse 21, reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The rejection of Christ by the religious establishment of Israel leads Jesus to branch out with his offer, and it will as time progresses. Sir, verse 22, the servant responds, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master, verse 23, told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house may be full. Country lanes is a little free as a translation. It's really the Greek word for hedges. It was uh, low hedges where uh, travelers would stop along the side of the road and find shelter. And we use that terminology. This just came to me, but we, we beat the hedges, right? We beat, go beat the bushes. That's probably where that phrase came from. But we, they, that's the idea is go out there, beat the bushes, and wake up the vagrants and have them come into the house of the master. Go get as many people as you can possibly find because I want my house to be full. Those that you would think would have come have refused the invitation. They have been rude. They have broken etiquette by accepting the invitation at first but then rejecting it when the second offer came. So go and bring in anyone that will come. Certainly Jesus is preparing his hearers and preparing those who are, who are later to follow with the Gentile mission. It's very subtle at this point. I don't know how much he intends to say that here, but that will be the ultimate response. It is from the Gentiles where much of the response will come. Now notice verse 24 as Christ brings this to close. I tell you then, Not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. To reject Christ is to be condemned. The parallel thought is over in 1328 through 30. In fact, much of what we look at today has already been discussed in chapter 13. Verse 28, there will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth, 
when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the bushes. They'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and and they'll take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Listen, Pharisees. The door is closing. The time is short. You must embrace Messiah and the kingdom of God, which has not come upon you as you thought was some cataclysmic display of power. But the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in your very midst. In fact, the king of the kingdom is talking to you about dinner etiquette. It's time to wake up and see him and to see the day and to know what is taking place before your very eyes. What's the proof? There's a swollen man who now is normal. Eating. It's something we love to do. It's something we love to do with one another. And it indicates fellowship. As I mentioned earlier, this is the last meal to which Jesus is invited by the Pharisees. They're going to find their indigestion some other way from here on out. But they're not bringing him back. Because I believe they knew and understood that these dinner etiquette discussions were saying much more than what it seemed. The kingdom offer of Jesus was being rejected, and so in his heart there cries out the words of 1334, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Do you see the phrase? But you were not willing. You've rejected my invitation. The heart of the shepherd is wounded by this rejection. Not because he takes it personally on a human level, but because he knows that those who reject him are rejecting life. You know, there is in the future a great feast. There will be, in fact, a kingdom feast. And I'd like you to turn to Revelation 19. As you bear with me for just a moment longer, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. This great feast is not just an idea in the minds of the Pharisees and the Jewish people. This is a revelation of the future that pertains to you and pertains to me. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6, Then I heard, says John prophetically, what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Will you be at that meal? Will you come to that meal? If you have heard my words this morning and have not come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He has not forgiven your sin. You need to receive this invitation to come to this meal. Because you're going to be like the Pharisees or you are going to be like those that meet at this meal. You will receive Christ as Savior or you will reject Him. There is no other offer. There is no other answer or solution. Have you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have your dinner reservation? Have you accepted it and are you on your way? That is a massive question that we lay out here from this text. But to those, I think, who are pursuing Christ, should we not see that to embrace Jesus is to embrace one who shapes the way we live? Having your reservation at the marriage supper of the Lamb is not a ticket that gets you into heaven alone. But to embrace Christ as Savior is to embrace one who longs to shape your mind and to steer your course. And Jesus says something here to us that is profound. He says, when you sit down at a meal, it reflects your theology. The way that you interact with people in something so simple as a meal shows what you believe about God. And it shows the destiny of your soul. How you act at a social event reflects what you believe about Him. Eating is part of the social fabric, but you can host dinner parties in order to curry favor with the elite or get close to someone who will benefit you. In fact, you can do virtually everything in this life to serve no one but yourself. At the heart of everything you do can be self and self alone. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that concept should be in your rearview mirror. We have selfishness that clings to us, and we need to be leaving it behind. But if you're following Jesus Christ as your model, if He truly is your master, then you're going to eat differently. You're going to employ your money differently. You are going to relate to people differently. These might be seen by many on the external as just social etiquette issues, but if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it transforms the way you eat. It transforms the way you talk. It transforms the people that you know and how you relate to those people. The theology of Jesus Christ was never meant for an ivory tower. It was meant to walk. 
So if you are driven by the principles that Jesus laid out in his offer of the kingdom, hospitality is to meet needs. It's to minister to others. And it is to live life with view of eternal reward rather than merely physical reward. Knowing Jesus Christ should mean that you take a class differently at school, that you relate to the people at the lunchroom differently, that you work differently, that you're a different kind of neighbor. Jesus reshapes minds and he transforms lifestyles. Are you following him? Is he transforming the way that you look at life and the way that you live? If so, self will be left behind and the glory of Christ and the future reward of heaven will be clearly in your focus in the way that you do everything from eating to sleeping to drinking to living to knowing people. It will all be transformed by that vision of eternal reward before the Lord of the universe. Are you being transformed by his vision of life? Or are you rejecting that vision? These are serious questions we need to take to heart. Let's bow for prayer as we do so. Father, how short we fall. And how under conviction we are as we sense Jesus' transformed view of life. And we know, Lord, that the answer is not in ourselves to simply reform our way with our own strength and power. But God, the answer is with you and with the power of the Spirit of God who will transform us as we depend upon His presence in our life, as we walk in the Spirit as Jesus taught us to walk. And I ask God for this assembly, I, I intercede in their behalf and in my own behalf, I pray, God transform us. May our theology walk. May it get out of the building and out of the theological classes and the Bible studies which we're privileged to have and may it transform the way that we live and may people see it. Some will reject, but I pray God for those who may in fact respond. May Christ Jesus be magnified and exalted and honored by the humility of life that flows from us as we strive to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. May we take the lower seat May we use our resources to give them away to those in need. May we minister to others, not for the benefit they bring us in this life, but for the reward of heaven. Who is that weak person, that isolated soul, that unimportant individual, whose life you would have us change. Though no one sees, though no one knows, who would you have us to help? Lord, may we, like Jesus, have a f eyes fixed on eternal reward. 
change us. And for anyone who is caught in the cult of self, I ask, Lord, that you would liberate them from sin and self and bring them into the light of the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, our cry to you in the Spirit. Amen.